If you have your Bible or your phone, a tablet, something like that, please turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. We are making our way through the book of Revelation, and we are in this section, chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus is sending these prophetic messages, if you will, these authoritative messages to the various churches to whom this entire letter, the book of Revelation, was written. We saw his letter to the church in Ephesus, his message to them, early in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Then the message to the church in Smyrna in verse 8 down through 11. The church of Pergamum in verses 12 down through 17. And this morning we're going to look at the church Thyatira. These letters, these messages from Jesus to these churches, I think are meant to be understood just like we would read the book of Philippians, or the book of Colossians, or the book of Romans. Letters written to the church in Rome, or to the church in Philippi, but we learn incredible theological truth from them that we then seek to apply to our lives today. The same is true of these. Jesus addressing the church of Thyatira with a message for them, but a message for us as well as we see down in verse 29, he who has an ear to, he- uh, to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this is for us. I think the first thing we ought to see from the church of Thyatira is this, that let's not be so enamored with our progress or with our growth that we miss out on needed improvement. Let's watch it in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the Son of God. Interesting, it's the only time this phrase is used about Jesus in the entire book of Revelation. John is probably playing off of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God made a promise to David that one of his sons would ultimately rule over the entire world. We know that Jesus Christ is the ultimate son of David and that he would have a special relationship with God. Also playing off of Psalm 2, which we'll come back to at the end of our message this morning. The son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. If you've been with us through our study, we know that back in chapter 1, John saw a, a vision of the risen, exalted Jesus Christ. And he saw a number of things in this vision. And two of them were that he had eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. Again, I don't think we're meant to look at that vision and say, that's what Jesus looks like now, but rather... That's what Jesus is like. His eyes are like a flaming fire, probably carries the idea of his searching gaze. 
from which nothing escapes. And his feet like burnished bronze. We said that burnished bronze shines magnificently. And it, it could carry that idea of just as John saw him, he shined, as he says, like the brightness of the sun. But it also probably carries the idea of Jesus as the warrior who will judge his opponents. We will see him in chapter 19 trampling out the wine press of the wrath of God. His feet are like burnished bronze. Nothing stands in his way and nothing will stop him from accomplishing his purposes. But he goes on in verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Now, if you know these letters, you know that verse 20 is coming. But I have this against you. But before we get there, let's take note of Jesus' commendation of this church. I know your deeds. Again, just a general word for all of the wonderful things they did in service to God and men their hospitality, their encouragement to one another, their generosity, the help they would provide to others, the prayers, the evangelism. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your love. Remember a few churches ago, it was the church in Ephesus that was doing so many wonderful things, but I have this against you that you have lost your first love. The Ephesians were no longer motivated by and animated by their love for God and love for others. Their service had just become um, drudgery, if you will. I have to, I got to kind of a thing, rather than motivated by the love of God and love of man. But, but here, no, I know your deeds and your love. That cardinal Christian virtue of love was alive and well in the Thyatirans. And your faith, their trust in God and his goodness, even despite the difficulties that they were going through. The hardships of life, the trials of life. We want our hardships to go away. We want the trials to be short and sweet. But maybe more than anything, in the midst of hardship and trial, what we want is faith. That we would continue to trust God even in the midst of them. That we wouldn't question his goodness, we wouldn't question his love and his care for us. We might be mystified by what he's up to in our lives through the trial and the hardship. But yet we're going to trust him. And they did and their service. This is the idea of pouring out oneself for the sake of others. Employing our gifts and our ability for the good of others. And we remember Jesus taught his disciples, I am among you as one who serves. And he calls upon us who follow him to do just the same to serve others, to meet needs, both material and spiritual. I know your deeds, your love, your faith and service and perseverance. There's that word again. 
their ability just to stay at it, to keep trusting in Jesus, to keep believing in him and obeying him. And when they fall and stumble, to keep coming back to him over and over and over and over again. And then finally, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. They were making progress. I don't know, but I think the list kind of builds to this crescendo. Your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and perseverance. And that all of those things, you're doing it better today than you were at the beginning. You're making progress. You're growing. In the words of Paul, maybe to the Thessalonians, they were excelling still more and more. Constantly looking at their life, maybe as a church, and saying, where can we grow? How can we do better? And indeed, they were. So again, may God make these sorts of things true of Redeemer Community Church. Jesus is legit saying to them, I know this about you, and it's really, really good. But, but, I have this against you. So the point was, let's not be so enamored with our progress in the faith that we miss needed improvement. They would have had great reason to slap themselves on the back, pat themselves on the back. And yet Jesus, for all of his commendation and encouragement to them, says, but hey, it's as if maybe he's, he's saying, here green, here green, 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 but, but here's a red. Here's a red light that, that I want you to address. Let's read a few verses and, and then I'll say something about it. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. There needed improvement was that they needed to deal with this woman who calls herself a prophetess, Jezebel. So a handful of questions. Who was this woman? Jesus names her here Jezebel. That's probably not her name. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you don't have to turn there, but I will. Back in 1 Kings, when Ahab became king in Israel. Uh-oh. Where'd it go? I have. My mind just went completely blank. First Kings 16, there it is. Ahab became king in Israel. And listen to what the scripture says about him. 
Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. This was when the, nor- the kingdom was split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Asa is king in the south, and Ahab becomes king in the north. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And if you remember the story, the the thing that Jeroboam did was that he didn't want the people in the north traveling down to Jerusalem in the south to worship the Lord. He was afraid that 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 would kind of tie them to the southern kingdom of Judah. So he made two golden calves, and he put one at the southern border and one at the northern border of Israel, and he called upon the northern kingdom of Israel to worship at these two locations rather than going to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. So Jeroboam had introduced that kind of idolatry into the northern kingdom of Israel. But look at Ahab. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So King Ahab of Israel not only followed in the sins of Jeroboam in the worship of the golden calves and leading Israel to do that, He went and married Jezebel, who was not a Jewish lady. She was a worshiper of Baal. Ahab begins to worship Baal as well. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So through the influence of Jezebel, Ahab, in addition to the golden calf thing, introduces Baal worship into the heart of Israel. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So through the influence of Jezebel, Baal worship, idolatry, gets introduced into Israel. And if you know anything about Baal worship, they would worship Baal, and then they would commit acts of immorality with the idea that that would encourage Baal to bring fertility to the land. That was part of the worship of Baal, was acts of immorality with the hopes of moving Baal to be fertile, with the land of Israel. Well, not only did Jezebel do that, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 18 that Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. Whenever Elijah went up against the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and defeated them, the Lord God of Israel, showing himself the one and true only God, and Elijah had The prophets of Baal killed. We know that Jezebel then, now Ahab told Jezebel that Elijah, what Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, 
so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she threatens the life of Elijah. She is not a wonderful lady. I hope none of us would name our daughters Jezebel. She did not belong to the people of God. She somewhat infiltrated the people of God through her marriage with Ahab and through him led the people of God into idolatry and into immorality. So apparently there was a false prophetess there in the church and Jesus here is tying her to Jezebel of old. She calls herself a prophetess Interesting, one of the commentators pointed this out, that Jesus is dealing with imposters over and over again in these letters. I had never seen that, but back in the church of Ephesus, there were those who called themselves apostles, and yet you figured out that they weren't. And we saw back in the church of Smyrna, those who claimed to be Jews, part of the people of God, but indeed they were not. And here is this Jezebel, this woman who calls herself a prophetess, but indeed she's not. She's a false teacher within the church. And what was she doing? She was teaching, and through her teaching, leading my bondservants astray. It's an interesting little Greek word there, the, the leading astray. It's the Greek word plane from which we get planet. When we look at the night, the night sky, the stars are what? They're fixed. But what do planets do? They wander through the sky. They move through the sky. Through her false teaching, she was causing Jesus' bondservants to wander. False teaching always has that sort of influence as we read about it in the New Testament. Sometimes it's described as disturbing God's people. Sometimes it's described as upsetting God's people. Sometimes it's described as putting burdens, undue burdens upon God's people. Well, here was a false teacher within the church teaching some things that were leading some of God's people astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jim Hamilton commenting, this woman might have been justifying participation in the Roman imperial cult with the result that the Christians in Thyatira engaged in idolatrous, immoral activities that accompanied the pagan celebrations of their day. But whatever it was that she was teaching, it was, it was leading God's people not to full allegiance to Jesus Christ and his ways and to him and his ways alone. But in addition to calling Jesus Lord, apparently they were also maybe calling Caesar Lord participating in the pagan idolatry there in Thyatira 
and along with some of it, just like Jezebel of old and Baal worship of old, there was immorality attached to it that some in the church were falling into. And what did she refuse? In verse 21, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Most believe what's happening here is that the church, rightly so, had begun a discipline process with her, a church discipline process. Again, you don't have to turn there, but the famous passage on that is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following. Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right? Jesus really, really has a heart for his people not drifting away into false um, teaching and into living in a way inconsistent with his teaching. And so w whenever you got a brother, sister in, in the Lord, in, part of the family, and he's led astray or she's led astray, go to them and, and, and call them back. And, and, and if they come back, you've won your brother, you've won your sister. Awesome. If you go to them and, and hey, listen, no, I, no, I'm not doing anything wrong or you're wrong. I'm going to continue. Then, hey, you take somebody else with you or maybe two other people and you go and you plead with them, brother, sister. All the while, you're trying to win them back. Win them back to faithfulness to Jesus and walking in the ways of Jesus. And, and hopefully they will listen. They'll repent and say, you know what, you're right. I'm, I just, I got led astray. I went down this path and thanks so much for coming calling me back to obedience to Jesus. They repent. Maybe, maybe they refuse that. And so you go get more. You tell it to the church and say, our, our dear brother, our sister is, is off the rails. Let's, let's call them back. It's all, all of it is with this desire to see repentance and, and coming back to faithfulness to Jesus. Church discipline always has that aim. And apparently this process had been started with her. I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to repent of her immorality. Let's just say now and encourage all of us, let's, let's as, best we can. Let's always live with a tender heart, if we can, to Christ and his ways and his work through God's people to call us back to faithfulness to Christ. Because church discipline, you know, we, we think of it as this big, oh, church discipline. Ah. But really, church discipline happens all the time in relationship with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Hopefully, it happens through the preaching of God's word 
through the teaching of God's Word and Sunday school classes and the like. Hopefully it happens at community group where we're looking at God's will together and we realize one of us might be at in, in, through encouragement. We, we're just always being brought back, right? Because we're always kind of living like this. But together, we, we discipline one another. We, we call each other back to the path. And sometimes, though, we, hey, come on back. No. Come on back. No. Come on back. No. Let's not have that no kind of heart. May God give all of us soft hearts to not do like she apparently did. But probably what happened as well is the church apparently and maybe the leaders of the church had lost their will in continuing the process. She had been approached, didn't repent. Maybe a couple had gone to her and she didn't repent. Maybe, maybe a handful more had gone to her and she didn't repent. And, and yet there she was still within the church family, continuing to teach her erroneous doctrines and leading God's people into sin. And as a result, verse 22, goodness, behold, Jesus says, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. This is strong stuff and not exactly sure how to take it, but, but the best I could see this week in my studies, that apparently Jesus was threatening, if you will, a physical sickness upon her that was intended to prompt repentance. Again, we see the grace and the mercy of Jesus alive and well here. He's, he's seeking to lead this woman through, through his people back into repentance and those who committed adultery with her. Probably the idea is not that they committed adultery with her, but but just as she was engaged in that sort of activity, they too were engaged in that sort of activity. They had been led astray by her teaching and into the idol worship and the immorality that went along with it. Jesus is longing for them to repent. And so apparently a physical sickness for her, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, that there would be difficult physical suffering and need as sort of a first stage of divine discipline, again, intended to lead these who call themselves Christians at least to repentance and to renewed fidelity. And, and they could, through their repentance, escape from it. Verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the children and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Some believe that, that here John is playing off of the Ahab and Jezebel story. That because of what Ahab did through the influence of his wife Jezebel in the introduction of Baal worship into Israel, and the killing of God's prophets and seeking the life of Elijah, 
that judgment was to come upon that family. And part of that judgment was that Ahab's 70 children, 70 sons, would too be killed. And indeed they were. Second Samuel, Second Kings chapter 10. And so in light of that, if indeed that's what's going on here, you have Jezebel, this false teacher, those who commit adultery with her, so those who are following her teaching, and then her children, probably the same folks. It's not three different groups of people. The, the children are those Christians within the congregation who are being led astray into her teaching and into the immorality that she was encouraging. So, Jesus, it seems, wants the church to deal with this, not to tolerate it. In verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Again, apparently some sort of, of calling her and those who were following her in this sin had been initiated, but then maybe it had not gone as far as it should, to where ultimately they would say to Jezebel and those who follow her, listen, if, if, if you don't see the wrong in this, if you don't repent of this, then we will we'll have to consider you no longer as brothers and sisters, and you cannot teach what you teach within this church family. They would regard them as unbelievers in the protection of God's people. Seems like that was what they were supposed to do. Remember, the Ephesian church had been really good at this. I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Well, apparently, they had not done this with this false teacher that was among them, and that's what Jesus was calling them to do. Before we keep going, let me just make, make this point quickly. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God that is meant to be enjoyed by a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. We've said before, some make out sex to be a god. Some sadly make out sex to be gross. But sexual intimacy is a gift. It's not a god. It's not gross. It is a gift from God to a man and a woman to be enjoyed in the intimacy, in the oneness of the marriage husband, a wife, eyeballing each other and saying, I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. And in that marriage covenant, sexual intimacy is given as a gift. It's not the big part of marriage, but it is a significant and a real and a wonderful part of marriage. And so everything else related to sexuality 
outside of that falls short of the biblical vision of sexuality. Fornication, right? Of enjoying, if you will, sexual intimacy outside of marriage before being married is not a part of God's ideal. It is a sin or adultery, right? That within that marriage covenant, one of those partners going outside of the marriage covenant for sexual intimacy, that is not a part of God's plan. Homosexuality and lesbianism is not a legitimate expression of sexual intimacy. We want to glory in and celebrate the gift of sexual immorality, sexual intimacy in the context of a man and a woman in marriage. And we want to say we know the temptations that are out there and all of that. And to, to humble, repentant people, we want to put our arms around them and say, we love you and we want to help you. There is forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ for all of our sins, including our sexual sins. Can I hear an amen? Amen. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the, into the world to save sinners like you and me. And we got all kinds of sins. Some of those sins are sexual sins, and they are not outside of the saving power of Jesus Christ. He can forgive anything to a repentant person. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ for fornication, for adultery, for homosexuality, for lesbianism, for any and all sexual sin that finds itself outside of God's design of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. So friend, if you have sinned sexually, there is hope in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and help. We want to be here to help you if we can. None of us, right, Redeemer, will be shocked when we find out that somebody is struggling with a sexual sin, right? Listen, sometimes I get young couples that come to me and they want me to marry them, and I'm thrilled about that. And one of the questions I ask them is I say, hey, listen, you know, let's be honest, tell me, are you all sleeping together? Yeah. What do you think I do? Fall on the ground as surprised as I can be, unbelieving that two young people would do it? No, no. Do I pick up a book and throw it at them? No. Do I kick them out of the office? Get out of here! Not at all. It doesn't surprise me. It ought not to be. And we talk about that. 
And we say, hey, listen, but how about, y'all both know that's not God's desire, right? Yeah, we know. It's just so hard. I get it, brother. I get it, sister. But Jesus calls us to hold on and to wait. And so starting today, we're going to stop. Are y'all living together? Yeah. Hey, I know this is going to be hard and it's going to be a mess, but we've got to stop living together too. We're not going to play married until we get married. And so you got to move out. Find a friend, find an apartment, find whatever. Move out. We're going to stop sleeping together. And then we're going to, we're going to do this right, and we're going to wait, and then you all are going to get married. And then in that covenant of a man and a woman in a covenant marriage, enjoy. we got to finish. Jesus encourages in verse 24, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. So this false teacher, this prophetess, and the influence that she was having in the church, some were being led astray, but many were not. And Jesus said, I, I'm not, I have no other burden on you. I think the burden that he did have on them, though, was that they were to deal with Jezebel and her followers. They were to continue the church discipline process in hopes of seeing restoration, but if not, saying you can no longer teach here anymore and have that sort of influence anymore. We have to regard you all as not believers in Jesus until there's repentance. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. I think he has in mind verse 19. The way you've been so faithful, keep that up. Hold fast until I come. We don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I love this song, Almost Home. Don't drop a single anchor we're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now. We're almost home. The promised land is calling. We're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then. We're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back. We're almost home. Almost home. We're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord. We're almost home. This journey, ours together, we're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne. Come faint of heart, we're almost home. This life is just a vapor, we're almost home. The sun is setting yonder, we're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord, we're almost home. Redeemer, hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to his word and to his ways. 
And when you and I stumble and fall, let's confess our sins, repent from our sins, and seek to follow him ever anew. Again and 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 again. Until he comes. Press on to that blessed shore. We're almost home. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessel of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 2, which is a promise about him. And the fact that, that God will give to him a kingdom over which he will reign forever. And Jesus says here, and my people will reign with me. Revelation 5 verse 10. You, Jesus, have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 22 Looking to the age to come, there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Hold fast. Press on until he comes, and we will reign with him forevermore. Let's pray. Father, help us at Redeemer to be full of deeds and love and service and perseverance and progress and help us as a church family to be on the alert, to watch out for false teaching that may creep up among us, for false living that may creep up among us and, and help us to love one another well and call each other back to faithfulness to the word of God and faithfulness to obedience to Jesus. Help us hold fast, press on until you come and make all things new and reign and we shall apparently reign with you forever and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.